Hi guys. Hello. Hey, hey, Rock. Uh, the show hasn't officially started yet. We're gonna get we're gonna get everything rolling in just a second. We finally got. Can you uh, tell us who uh, whose music is on that uh, the HD version of the trailer that you have on on YouTube right now? Uh, there's a few trailers up there, but the one with the musical score is Dave Tipper. He's a yeah, pretty well-known electronic music artist. Yeah, I, it's so funny. I was just listening to Tipper last night with a couple of friends of mine. Uh, I'm not sure yeah. if it's the same uh, group or he's, not. Um, he, he's one of the secret brotherhood of ayahuasca drinkers. <laughs> really? Wonderful. Yeah. Yeah, so that's great. He comes out to Australia quite a lot, and he's yeah, he's got some he's got some good tribe out here that he drinks with. Uh, yeah, and I, 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 because Tipper, I was like, I, I, I know that name. I said, I know, I, I do know that name. Well, let's play the song and get this started. Yeah, that's 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 what I'm trying to get up right now. So beautiful. Yeah, it's ever decreasing circles. Is the song. Well, good evening, everybody, and welcome to Dose Nation. It's Saturday, April 13th, 2013. I am your host, Jake, and thank you so much for joining us. And, of course, joining me, as always, is the founder of Dose Nation, who without any of this would not be possible, James Kent. James, how are you this evening? I'm doing really well. It's been a busy week for me, but I'm glad to be doing the show finally. Yes, this is it's this is something I look forward to all week. So thanks, everybody, for joining us tonight, and... Um, I hope that you uh, are ready for uh, an interesting show, uh, and I and I just want to say, Tipper, fantastic! One of my uh, has ha- has has become uh, an an artist that I quite enjoy um, as I've been getting into his music. But let's but let's introduce tonight's guest um, because there we have we have a lot to talk about tonight. So Rock Razam is a freelance writer, editor, journalist, and now filmmaker. Specializing in psychedelic subculture, he has interviewed numerous psychedelic luminaries for print and web media, as well as for his own podcast, In a Perfect World. He is the author, he is the author of Aya Awakenings, a memoir of his journeys through the South American ayahuasca culture. Um, Aya Awakenings has now been turned into a feature-length film, which will be premiering at the MAP Psychedelic Science Conference in Oakland next week. Rock, welcome to the program. Thank you. Glad to be here. Now, where are you right now, Rock? I'm uh, I'm in Australia. I'm in a little town called Mullumbimby, which uh, is the psychedelic capital of Australia, or at least I like to think so. And is that because you're there, or is there other things happening besides rock well, song? Uh, Australia has a bit of a, a hippie legacy, uh, sort of inherited from the uh, the hippies in the '60s and early '70s. There was a um, 
a, a big festival, 1972, the Aquarius Festival, and they founded a, a town called Nimbin, which is um, a very famous uh, sort of uh, marijuana town. It all, the green economy runs on that, and a lot of countercultural roots are there. It was originally going to be in Mullumbimby, but they, they moved to Nimbin inland uh, in, in the last moment, and so there's always been a very strong hippie and countercultural community in this area. And is that where you're from, or were you drawn there because of that? I was drawn here because of that, actually. It's a and very, where, it's, were you, um, where were you from? Where did you grow up? Uh, mainly Melbourne, which is right down the, the bottom of Australia. That's a beautiful city. Anyway, yeah, um, I know Sydney gets all the credit down there, but Melbourne is really pretty, I think. Melbourne is the one with the real underground culture. Yeah. yeah. Much, much cooler than Sydney. Yeah, yeah. So what took you to Mullumbimby? Uh, well, I guess, uh, like, like many people, there's a bit of a change of life, like getting out of the cities and, uh, to somewhere a bit more sustainable and, um, and down tempo. But I really, I really, I've got children as well. So I really wanted to come here and just sort of, um, I like to think it's like when we have these, um, this term called doof and it's like, uh, trans music festival type culture. And it's like, you know, doof is in Australia or that it's from the music, the doof, 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 doof. It's a very Australian <laughs> term for the music, but I like to think that Mullumbimby is where the doofers come to retire with their families when you want to hang out and be in nature in the countryside and still have the, the tribal community around. Now, I've been watching the entheogenic scene down there in Australia for a while, and it seems like you are the most active player down there, at least on the world scene. Is there anybody else within Australia proper who is also as active as you, who may not be as popular outside of the uh, outside of Australia. Um, Australia has a very healthy uh, psychedelic and well, mainly entheogenic. You know, we'll use that label because it, it's a bit more about the power plants and the psychoactives um, made of the earth and just the, the rectums or things from a lab. Number one is, I guess, the organisation uh, Entheogenesis Australis, which has um, been a, a wonderful supporter of me over the years and, and vice versa. Um, and they were they helped launch the tour of the uh, the Eye Awakenings film. Um, because of Entheogenesis Australis, there's been a lot of people who uh, every year the tribe comes together and we have our, our conference, one year's in the bush, one year's in the, in the city, um, with lecturers and overseas lecturers as well as Australian lecturers. But there's been a real nurturing of the community and of people speaking on different facets of psychedelic culture and of um, nurturing the, the relationships between the psychedelic culture to train people you know, and help support people in different facets. Um, there's now, a few different other people. Oh, well, I have a question about that. The, um, the Australian team seems pretty healthy. They've got a lot of festivals. And like you said, there are groups like Australia Entheogenesis or Entheogenesis Australia. What is the political climate there towards the psychedelic scene? It seems like it's maybe not as harsh as it is in the U.S. or was in the U.S. What's the tolerance level for, for that kind of activity from, from the um, government and from the, the general population? I think if we just keep our noses, heads down, noses you know, to the grindstone and uh, just do what you do in an integral and sacred way, I think you, you'll be all right. Um, there's, like many things, like many countries, I guess, in the last few years, there's lots of reportage on psychedelic, the, the renaissance or the rise of psychedelic medicine and coming back in that, that sort of um, category and also on entheogenic plants and ayahuasca and things like that has been quite widely reported in different facets of Australian media. All right, well, um, I the think, ABC... 
what I want to get, what I want to kind of get into is in, in America, psychedelics seem to be very closely related to activism. And there's a, there's an activism and a politicism to it that's, that's almost a backlash to the war on drugs and, uh, and how hard people get penalized here for those, those kinds of uh, activities. In Australia, it seems like you guys kind of just skipped over that whole edge of the movement and went straight into that, that sacred entheogenic trance scene. Is that correct, or do you guys have that kind of paranoia and fear there in Australia that we did here in the U.S.? Well, I don't think we didn't have Richard Nixon. Let's put it that way. Thank goodness you didn't have Richard Nixon. Own, um, you know, conservative politicians, which have have kept it sort of mainstream, straighto magrado, I could say. Um, but we, I think Australia is a very different culture as well. It's like you know, it's different history and a different legacy and a different sort of um, personality or flavor to the Australian people. And it's very it's very easygoing in a sense. All the cliches are sort of true to a certain level. Um, you know, Australians can be very easygoing and matter-of-fact and just, you know, they like to relax and, and hang out and, and all different things like that. But, I mean, we just have a different cultural sort of matrix, I guess, of how, how it's developed here. And we don't have, per se, the, the full-on persecution of the war on drugs. Although, of course, you know, under... Um, United Nations Psychotropic Drug Convention 1971 and, and most of the signatory nations who are attached to that, we still do have, um, you know, a very, uh, a sense of the things that are illegal, which, um, perhaps there is still people fighting for and people still that are, um, having to, to wage that war against the war on drugs. Do you have a large drug POW like prison population there, or is it less of a, a thing in Australia than it is here in the US or even in the Great Britain? Yeah, look, I think everything's lesser in scale. You know, Australia's population is about 10% of America's. And so the, culturally, things don't get to the critical mass to the same degree. So the Australian counterculture has been quite, you know, small and niche in a way. And that's maybe protected it because it's just not as big an issue. Um, even th- with things like marijuana, which is probably the most uh, widely used recreational drug in the world, as well as in Australia, um, you know, things are maybe of a smaller scale and there's some, um, I'm not even sure of the penalties. I mean, I think there's some some states in South Australia, apparently marijuana, you can grow with certain plants and, um, you know, it's it's not as big a thing. There's still, if, it, if you were to cross the line, I'm sure it's still still... Not good, but I mean, it's, it's not so as big in a, a big in issue. Australia, in Australia, when you guys um, party and break the law, you do it in a very easygoing way. And then when the law uh, has some kind of backlash and comes down on you, they do it in a very easygoing way because things are just that way in Australia. They don't get they don't get as uptight as they do in the U.S. As you put it put it that way. Well, Jake, people we we never don't break get the as law hardcore. Oh yeah, <laughs> we, we would never do that. No, really. I mean, the thing is, I mean, in terms of the law, um, if it, it's in terms of festivals or the party scene, most things have been pretty commercialized in the last decade or so. So there's less renegade action in terms of being able to put on an underground festival or party to begin with. Um, and then, you know, I don't know, I'm going to make a general broad street sweep here, but it seems to be that there's a, a commodification of the um, illegal drugs market worldwide and things like ecstasy or methamphetamines and things like that are so de rigueur and, ex- you know, maybe not accepted, but I'm sure there's some collusion between uh, the powers that be and uh, keeping the soma for the masses and keeping everyone in their nice little club bunny type of frequency. So um, that's all sewn up and, you know, 
Let's say anything more about that. Hmm, interesting. So, how did yeah. you get involved in the uh, what? What kind of what drew you into the global ayahuasca scene? You started in Australia, but then you you realized that there was something going on more in the world. Did you or did you hear about you know, ayahuasca funny, first? Let's, let's step back a step because the one of the one of the key uh, turning points I think in the Australian you know entheogenic scene was Terence McKenna. The great uh, Johnny mm-hmm. Appleseed of uh, you know cultural memes. Um, he came out to Australia in 1997 on part of his world tour, and um, a lot of strategic things happened from that event, uh, as well as popularising ayahuasca at that time, which he, he was doing. Um, he met um, uh, Darpan, who is Australia's, I guess, preeminent uh, shamanic practitioner. And they developed a friendship and uh, vine was exchanged and Darpan began his journey with uh, the ayahuasca vine and being that nodal point in the Australian, uh, you know, community uh, to working with the plants. But it still, it wasn't, it wasn't until 2006 that I, I first sat with Darpan. So that's like nine years later. Um, and there was a very small but healthy uh, ayahuasca scene in Australia at that time. Can it's you interesting tell me- we'll talk. About mimosa hostilis, was that a big deal back then? What, no, just... no, that's more of a that's more of a North American. Uh, what was um, what was discovered in Australia that had DMT in it? Wasn't well, there? A we, plant? we have a we have a vast range of, of the acacias, which um, oh, right, contain acacias. active ingredients of DMT to, to to various levels, as well as different trees and uh, like guys, the cuminata and things like that. When you make ayahuasca in Australia, do you use those plants, or are you importing? Peruvian plants or South American plants? <clears throat> well, you know, I'm not doing anything. I was well, <laughs> so, in, in, in general, I'll say this. So the, the straight, you know, there's different versions. Ayahuasca is the South American, you know, fundamental there, but it, it, there's lots of different labels and terms. It's almost like global wasca now. But uh, Aussie wasca is a term that has been used or acacia wasca for the mix of using local uh, acacia plants as the, uh, the DMT-containing source in the brew, um, and it may still contain the ayahuasca vine or uh, Syrian rue is, is quite often used as well. Okay, so that is common down there to make the, the, the what is it called, the Australia wasca? Aussie wasca? Aussie wasca, mm. mate. Aussie wasca. Yeah, yeah. And how does that compare to the ayahuasca that you would get in the jungle? Is it similar? Just Look, you know, neuro, neurochemically, these things are always similar in the, uh, right. in the indigenous Amazonian tradition, their cosmovision, you know, it comes down to what is the spirit in these plants or what is the active principle in them. And they're very analogous. It's like kissing cousins, I guess, in a neurochemical sense. Um, but there are, there are slight variations to the, the feel of each brew and to the, the chemical effect is usually the same, but it can be sort of different ways to get to the same, same end result. Okay, so let's get back to Darpan, you said, is the name? Yeah, so I, I first sat with Darpan in 2006. Um, Were you, been you had been exposed to psychedelics before you sat with him? Or very was much that... so. Oh, well, very it's interesting, much so. We, we, it's interesting, Jake, we were discussing you know, the origins of the, the counterculture in Australia because it, it, it feels like to me, and this is interesting, and I think it, it's, it's in a Western sense this is applicable as well, but it seems to me that over many gen- over three generations, basically, there's been this uh, this gradation of the culture where in Australia it, it, it was the, the trans music festival scene, which, you know, has evolved from the global Goa style, which has evolved from the acid test back in the 60s. So there's been this, this legacy and this lineage 
of the counterculture over many over three generations now. But it seemed to be that we had to go, or we've gone from, you know, white picket fence America in the the labs having to discover LSD to break open the head, and then an ecstasy wave in the eighties, and then this plant entheogen surge in the noughts. Um, because I first came into the ayahuasca scene from the trans music scene, and there was an overlap where. I guess the forerunners or some of those uh, cultural creatives or early adopters were doing the medicine work and uh, uh, there was a bleed through from this counterculture from trans music coming into the medicine work. And um, I first discovered it then and sat with Darpan in 2006, <clears throat> just before I went to Peru um, to to work on the article which turned into the book Irish Shamanic Odyssey. Right. Okay. And so what was it about sitting with Darpen that made you say, you know, as opposed to the previous encounters with psychedelics that you had had, you sit with him, you take ayahuasca. What was different about that session that made you say, okay, this is something that I need to spend the next five, well, year, five years of my life some... working on? Yeah, I know what you mean. Um, no, I actually sat with Darpen to experience the medicine at least once before I went to Peru, but I was already on that trajectory to go over. Um, it wasn't something that happened in ceremony. Basically, I, I was, um, I, I'd rebranded myself as a, you know, a gonzo journalist in, uh, early 2006, actually, when I went over to Albert Hoffman's, um, 100th birthday symposium in Basel, Switzerland, and reported on that for some local newspapers here and, uh, for alternative media. And I sort of kept the momentum going, and my housemate had been over to, uh, to Peru and sat with a few curanderos over there, and I, I quickly realized that there was a, a big story there, you know, like I'd, I'd known about shamanism in general and broad strokes and I'd heard about ayahuasca from people like Terence, but it always seemed something very intangible and not very, um, very accessible to me until I realized, well, hang on a sec here, it is very accessible and you can go to Peru and there's these lodges set up and there's this catering to the, to the Western, um, demand for knowledge about ayahuasca and, and the indigenous, you know, vision that it brings. Um, and so I sat with Darpan as preparation for the story and researching that and then went over to, uh, to Peru in, in June 2006. Now, in your book, uh, Aya Awakenings, I think you, in one passage, you said you, visioned your, you envisioned yourself in the long line of ethnobotanical searchers like Shultois and Wasson and McKenna and now Razam, and you were thinking, but wait a second. I'm more of the first wave of psychedelic tourists or ayahuasca tourists. Uh, can you tell me a little bit about that vision that you had when you first got there and you were like, like thrust into the scene and, uh, yeah. well, and I, I, uh, what it was like all then the, all as opposed the, to what I, it's become. I, yeah. Sure. Um, I guess what I, what I recognized is that I went in with a very fresh, um, point of view, you know, and a journalistic sort of point of view that was really analyzing the culture that I was seeing there on the ground in Iquitos in Peru and, and different areas around the Amazon. Um, and I went to the Amazonian Shaman Conference, which Alan Shoemaker hosts every year in Iquitos. And it was, um, it's a package tour, basically. It's a package deal, but it's actually, it makes it very accessible for for newbies, for the, the, the fresh, um, you know, arrivals to actually get a grasp on what the culture is, who the lead curanderos and commentators are, and have an experience of ayahuasca. Um, but I, I quickly realized, you know, the back history of ayahuasca in the West um, was sporadic in a sense that there'd been uh, the early explorers like Richard Schultes uh, all throughout the, the first part of the 20th century, William Burroughs, who, of course, infamously uh, reported on Yahe. Um, in the Yahe letters back to um, Allen Ginsberg, 
and they were published in the mid-50s. And while there were individual explorers, perhaps it was more academic and more very, um, very fringe uh, throughout the 60s, 70s and into the 80s with um, many researchers going over, it, it that that's sort of I, I really sort of call them all the first waves of, of ayahuasca, and then I think for me the second wave of ayahuasca comes in about 1991. I would point, I would pinpoint that when uh, Don Francisco Montes Schuner, who was the founder of the Suchamama Ethnobotanical Gardens uh, just outside of Quitos, he formed the first Western Lodge that was designed to cater to Western seekers, and uh, you know that sort of was a turning point, I guess, for um, that second wave. We've had, you know, it's been 22 years since then. Um, and I don't know, the third wave seems to, seems to have been in the last few years when some of those early adopters of that second wave have continued to practice the medicine that they learnt over in Peru and bring it back to their individual countries around the world. And now we've seen this, uh, this blossoming of ayahuasca culture all through the Western countries, um, you know, under freedom of religion or, uh, their own spiritual pursuits. There seems to be now this third wave that's really, uh, pollinating everywhere. Now, talk, talk to me a little bit about um, how your perspective on the use of psychedelics changed once you went to Peru. I, I seem to remember reading or, or hearing you say something uh, when you said you didn't you didn't really call it the medicine until you saw it used in that way. Is am I remembering that correctly? You didn't. It wasn't part of your vocabulary, but now it's basically your whole paradigm for ayahuasca. Well, yeah, it's not just, I, you know, it's not just my paradigm. I guess that it's, it's sort of the stock standard response from people who are in ayahuasca culture, but we well, all yeah, get but it. When did, not- when did that, when did that paradigm change in your head? I mean, because it, you, you didn't, I'm sure when you first were introduced to psychedelics, you weren't like, Hey, give me some of that medicine. It was, it was a little bit more recreational or a little bit more freewheeling. But now you've, you've become very serious about it since, uh, you know, well, your exposure to ayahuasca in Peru. Um, yeah, things don't often have a, a very easy demarcation line, though. Um, I guess, you know, the reason that we call it the medicine is not just that we've learnt it from, say, the indigenous curanderos and the, the tribes of the Amazon who do revere it as the mother, the madre, and, and the medicine. And it is, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's plants from the jungle. It's, it's, the, it's their indigenous pharmacopoeia. But the reason, you know, I call it the medicine and, and other people do as well, it's not just from that lineage it's actually from the spirit of ayahuasca herself. You know, it's from the, the medicine or the doctors or the, the, the energy or the spirit in the plants. It, it very well transmits that knowledge that you can, as you feel it loading in your body and as you're purging and as you're, you're going through the process, um, it's very much a medicine. And like, like most, uh, natural medicines, it has that bitter taste to it. It's, it's very, it can be hard to get down and, and easy to bring up. But it's very much an, an earth sacrament. And so um, it's very uh, tangible and very definable, and you can feel that it is a medicine. So it's not just some type of legal posturing to call it a medicine or cultural sort of shorthand. It very much is, is something inherent that is in the uh, the experience itself and in the, the spiritual experience itself. Now, when it comes to psychedelics, um, I don't know, you know. I, I Yes, I know that the psychedelics have been done for the last generation or two in an often a recreational set and setting. I first did uh, LSD when I was about, I think, 19 or 20, but I, I, I had researched it a lot beforehand and I was very enamored by the 60s counterculture and by, um, by the ideology behind it. And so I think I approached it right from the start with a reverence or with a respect for the integrity of the substance 
and not just on a recreational sense. I mean, uh, yes, there's been recreation, there's been hedonism, but at all times there's also been consciousness expansion and there's this been, there's been this sense of trying to, this quest to, to not just sort of expand consciousness, but to figure out the context of what is consciousness and what, what the hell are we in, you know? Um, and so the, these have been tools. I've, I've always looked at these things as tools and catalysts for self-realization. All right. So I'm just going to, I want to, I'll, I'll, I'll ask one more question in this vein and then we can move on. But uh, when I hear people talking about ayahuasca in terms of the medicine, I realize it's a, it's a cultural thing and it is the way that they talk about it in, uh, in, in the circle, the traditional circles down there. Uh, but when I think about ayahuasca tourism, are these sick people who are going down to be treated with a medicine or are these people who are just thrill seekers looking for a new experience? I know it's a mix of both, but it's, uh, um, you know, for the person who's just down there for the experience, maybe they're not sick. They don't have a malady. Do they really need a medicine or are they just looking for, a, you know, a vacation of the mind? Well, there's a few embedded uh, concepts in there. You know, like thrill seekers has also the word in there, seeker. And you've got to realize that uh, in a different cultural context, you know, we, when when Western culture had, you know, religion as, as the underlying fundament to, to, it, um, to its thrust, when we had a religious impulse in us, uh, there was this idea of seekers and there was this idea of pilgrims. And people would often go on... You know, this might be medieval times or later, but people would go on, on long, arduous journeys, physical journeys as a pilgrimage, as this type of spiritual um, journey to help awaken their soul or to connect us to some outcome which would, you know, uh, awaken them. And so what I, what I see happening in, in Western culture at the moment, the, 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 it's not just the religious impulse. That's, that's, I guess, the commodification of the spiritual impulse. The spiritual impulse is in us all because we have a spirit. And when, when Western culture doesn't have um, a framework to facilitate the spiritual growth and spiritual um, energy, then it gets repressed. And so the Western psyche and the Western ego and our energy bodies have this, you know, in broad strokes terms, we have this sort of cultural repression of spirit. And so many people are going down to South America and experiencing ayahuasca there or in their home territories uh, to reconnect to the soul and their spirit. And they may have a physical illness, which they are going to work on. Um, but I've spoken to many and interviewed many, many curanderos in Peru, and they basically said that they see lots of these, these Westerners coming. Many of them don't have a physical sickness, but there's still something wrong with them. They can feel that from their cultural point of view and their their frequency of energy, they can see that Westerners are basically maladjusted, you know. They have all these energetic and um, sort of mental illnesses in the sense that they're, they're sort of at dis-ease. They're not really comfortable or they have these whatevers to them, but there's something in their psyches which is, is longing for some type of healing or reconnection. And so it may not be a physical illness, but in the, um, in the uh, indigenous cosmovision, the way they understand... Uh, health and, and sickness as well is that they understand that there's a, uh, a under the physical body there's an emotional body and a deeper still there's an energetic body and so the, the, the root cause of all physical illness starts at those deeper levels and so when they work with medicines like ayahuasca that they're often working on the deeper levels in a, in a spiritual sense and so um, they, they really see that you know it's the western headset we're so hooked up on uh, on um, computers and, and iPhones and, and Twitter and our consciousness is so fragmented 
that we're we're really distracted from the the deeper fundamentals of a, of a spiritual life, and so all these jungle medicines, and it's not just ayahuasca, entheogens in general, which are ego dissolving. They have a medicine for the mind and the body and the spirit. So, all right. So, I I, I want to jump in here and I want to talk because you because you mentioned the West and you said that there was no conduit for people to kind of connect with that deeper spirit because there's been this monopoly on religion. I don't know if you're familiar, but if you go back into the Western tradition and you go, I mean, you have to go far back. You have to go to the very, very, very early church fathers, the very early um, Christian ascetics. If you read what they're saying. They're, they're, they're essentially talking about the induction of a mystical state through um, the control of thought, through the control of action, through the, through, the, um, through, the, through the observance of certain rituals and practices in which they can achieve the state that, you, that you're describing or that connection that you're describing um, through this, this desert asceticism. Or, I mean, it doesn't have to be desert. It can be anywhere. I mean, you could be living in the French Alps and you could but do those, this. But those techniques have been lost to the modern West, more, net, more or less. We're not practicing that. Right, but, but, I, but, but I think that there is a basis in Western religion for, their, for, for that kind of connection. I don't think that Western religion was... Look, were, if, you're talking, if you're talking Gnostic Christianity or things like that, absolutely. Oh, no, 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 no. I'm talking about main... I'm talking, did, and, and, and that's the reason why the church has expunged them or absorbed them or totally, you know, commodified and... and Repackaged into this, 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 you know, branded spirituality. I mean, those, well, I mean, those even, things worked. They had a direct yeah. connection to, to to God, and and they were a threat to to major religions. Really. Even even the, uh, I mean, even orders, um, even even the religious orders within within the church themselves. I mean, they follow um, certain rules and ascetic practices. Which I mean, you know, and I and I visited monasteries, and I've met people who are in the ecclesiastical hierarchy, and it's almost like meeting like night and day. It's, you know, it's like meeting, um, you know, like uh, uh, an ayahuascaro versus somebody who lives in the middle of the city in Brazil or, you know, uh, in Rio de Janeiro or something like that who's a, who's a um, you know, a government worker. <laughs> it's almost like night and day when, it, when, it, when you really look at it. So, so but I mean, even, even within the context of the modern churches, there, there are certain groups, certain monastic groups like... Um, you know, the Benedictines or the Cistercians or the Cartusians, but which seek wanna, this hey, direct connection. I want to jump in here and get back to this idea about um, the, 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 the pilgrimage, because I think, I think Rock hit on something very important there, where uh, people who live in, say, the United States or Australia, who want to take a religious or spiritual pilgrimage somewhere, we're, we're not going to go to the Hajj, and we're not going to go visit the Temple on the Mount. Those things don't really have any, any resonance for our cultural archetypes these days. But going to some place like Peru and drinking ayahuasca, that sort of feeds our modern, I don't want to say cosmovision, I would, I'd rather say technovision of, of, of a pharmaceutical or a, uh, a, a pseudo-spiritual or a, a, a jungle medicine that takes us to that place as opposed to, say, some ancient uh, order or, or med- meditative rituals that Gnostic monks used to do. I think the idea of going to the jungle and drinking something uh, that that feeds you the sort of uh, vibrational frequency that you want is a little more palatable to our taste than, say, something like going out in the desert and fasting for two weeks or whatever it is to get to get to that state. Um, so, so Rock, t- tell me a little bit about um, 
I want to get to a couple of the experiences that you had down there in the book. But tell me a little bit about some of the people that you meet down there and uh, and and what's what's going on with the people. I know there's some people who are just there for a week and there's other people who come to stay. Um, what What is the, the Western expatriate community in Peru like around the ayahuasca culture? Hmm. Um. Well, I've only I've only been to Peru four times, but uh, you know I've documented oh, or, most or the of greater, in there. Yeah, the greater South America, wherever you've been. So, well, I, you know, I think in the, in the book, the, the the book when I went in two thousand and six, I was working on a freelance article, and it eventually became the book, which was actually titled "Irish Shamanic Odyssey," and the film is "Eye Awakenings." Um, but I had a line in the book where I was like, "Wow, you know, Iquitos in two thousand and six felt a bit like what Goa must have felt like, uh, you know, just just before the peak, just before it really got to critical mass and became like this center point for um, for consciousness and 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 music, and then you know, Goa trans spread out into the world, and it, you know, it, it um, Iquitos is um, I call it. It's it's the the high frontier, basically. It's like the the end of the road. It's like uh, you can only get to Wikitas by river or by plane. There's no um, there's no roads. <laughs> there isn't the Nauta Highway, but it doesn't connect it out to, uh, to to Lima or to the other cities. So um, it's the middle it's very of much, nowhere. Yeah, it's in the middle. It's a, it's a huge city. There's like four hundred thousand people or something like that. But it's also you know second world in a sense, and it's um it's uh. It, there's a lot of expats there. There's a lot of ayahuasca culture going on there. And in the uh, in the seven years, I guess, since I first went to Iquitos, it really has become that that Goa type of model, and it's become that that critical mass for ayahuasca seekers. And there's um, it almost reminds me a bit of uh, the height the Haight Ashbury, uh, say in '66, just before the flower children descended and like a plague of locusts and uh, and overwhelmed the, the capacity for you know for it to to be sustainable. Um, I think Iquitos will, will hold as many tourists that come, but the, the question is, there's these, these power dynamics and there's this supply and demand of, um, of spirituality and of ayahuasca tourism going on. And, um, you know, from all accounts, there can be some, um, some disreputable, uh, practitioners who are putting up their shingles to cater to this influx of Western tourists. Um, because there's just, there's just so many people descending. I mean, it's still, still probably only in the hundreds. But um, in terms of the, the money that the average tourist has in Peru, it's it's something which is very um, very desirable for the for the the poor Peruvians to to um, to to have that money from the tourism. And so everyone's setting up ayahuasca lodges, and there seems to be a need for some type of self regulation of the industry as it's developing and for the integrity of that. Um, and so it's it's creating some imbalances, and uh, it's it's also creating. There's a, there's a term in, um, in local Peruvians. I forget the, the actual term, but it basically means that, uh, in, in a, sort of a village sense that no one is greater than the other and they really want to, uh, distribute the wealth and have that sort of network approach to community building. And it's very, uh, adverse, adverse to the, the Western hierarchical model of centralization of power or money or whatever. Um, but it, it almost seems that it, it's, it's upsetting the apple cart that all this influx of money and tourists coming in. To the curanderos is really concentrating the wealth, and so everyone's either wanting to become a curandero or to cater to these tourists, and it's it's no different, I guess, than you know what the the tourist dollar has done in other countries with um, just natural natural beauty and set and settings. But um, it's a, it's a difficult kettle of fish because people are experiencing basically a, a hallucinogenic ritual that connects them to something deeper, and it needs to be facilitated in an integral way, and you know like. You know, a generation ago, the, the curanderos were their, their village healers. It's like, 
it, it's sort of like people from another country coming over to your local general practitioner on your local um, suburban block and giving them a you know a, a huge wad of money to to give them medicine. It's it's a very surreal sort of thing to to be happening. I guess as this um, Western imperialism goes into uh, you know South America. Yeah, yeah, it is really weird. It's sort of like there's an ayahuasca boom happening down there, and uh, there's a lot of locals, you know, um, managing to make a living serving the tourist market, and I think that's a good thing overall. Um, I think some tourists are probably getting cheated by uh, paying overpaying for some of the services that are being offered, but um, getting let's getting beyond that. I uh, I wanted to talk to you about one passage in your book that I, that struck me. Uh, I think I, I can't remember right off the top of my head who you were with, but you were uh, you had an EEG helmet on, and you had drunk ayahuasca, and they were taking readings of something, and there was some sort of pulsation going on in your forehead as they were watching spikes come out of the EEG readout. Is that am I remembering that correctly? Uh, almost, yes. Can you, can you tell me, can you tell me what was going on in, in that, in that scene when you were, uh, you had the, the EEG, uh, helmet yeah, on your head and, and we're, that, and we're freaking that, out on the, on the Godhead or whatever. I can't remember. I'll let you put it in your words because I'm not remembering it quite correctly. Yeah, that, that was actually chapter seven of the book. So I'd, um, I'd been doing quite a few ayahuasca ceremonies before that and, uh, I was um I was staying with Ron Wheelock who is uh his nickname now is the Gringo Shaman. He's I am, a, yeah, um, I'm I'm familiar uh, with him. Yeah, he's a westerner from Kansas. He's been over in in Peru now for over a decade. He's trained with indigenous curanderos and is um you know doing the the, the work over there and I found Ron very integral. I, I really resonated with him a lot. But Ron also was working at that time in 2006 with um with smokable 5-MeO DMT. And so the sequence that you're referring to, James, uh, which he had a you friend. Were- so Ron, Ron was working with a smokable 5-MeO-DMT and there was a, another Western scientist, we'll just call Dr. Wan, um, who was, uh, who's a real scientist and he works with the University of Washington and he's done a lot of work with, uh, EEG readings, um, quantitative electroencephalography scans of the brain. So he had this computer which was, um, wired up to a, a helmet, a little uh, helmet. You'd put in some plastic gel, and you'd wear it on your head, and it was all—it was all reading your, my brain waves. And he was doing this with many anyone who would uh, be up for it, for the experiment. Um, but we did an experiment at, at Ron's house at, uh, at La Rosa Cita, um, reading the brain waves while smoking 5-MeO DMT, and it, it was—it was actually the most spiritual experience of my life. It was a very deep contact experience with uh, with what I call the Godhead. I mean, there's many different terms for it. It's described in the book, and it's actually one of the centerpieces of the the new film, Our Awakenings, coming out uh, next week. Uh, we actually filmed the whole experiment, so we have the exterior oh, awesome. footage. Great, because that was the, my the, favorite. The funny that thing was is, my I mean, this is the scene thing. in the book. Yeah, it was great. Go ahead. Well, that's the interesting thing. It's it's you know, as I say in in the book and the narration in the film, it's like we we managed to film it, but that's only the outside flesh body, and on the inside is where the miracle is happening. You know, as fresh as a new day. And it's on the inside where all these things can't be put into words, where they are word, the word, the word of God made flesh. You know, so it, it basically drew on a lot of my, um, I guess my Christian, uh, upbringing and, and the whole word made flesh type of, uh, type of language. But, you know, something very profound did really happen. And you know, I really contacted. And, and what was, what was going down on the EEG readout when, uh, you were having your unity experience or surfing the Godhead? I think you said. 
Yeah, well, Dr. Wan was reading that and basically it went down, he could pinpoint the different bits of the brain as was going down into the experience. And I think it went into uh, some deep theta states um, that he could map at the time. But I mean, this is a, this is a thing. I mean, you can it measure. Was deep, on... It was like alpha and deep theta states with these like punctuated sharp delta spikes. I think every time you were having like a big wave of unity, you said there was like a jagged delta spike that would that would shoot up as you were like trying to focus yeah, just, in um, on the godhead. I just uh, I just found the output of his data the other day, and we were putting it in at the end of the the uh, that sequence of the film because we had some feedback from uh, viewers who were like, "Well, what was the results of that experiment?" You know. <laughs> And uh, it's pretty out there, as you'll see in the footage, um, you know, basically, basically there's this thing, you know, I was doing a lot of ayahuasca, I was very clean, and I had this this uh, experiential journalist type of, um, you know, headspace going on where I'd been minutely, hyper-realistically detailing everything around me in foreign country and in the ayahuasca state of trance. And as I went into the 5-MEO, I was taking copious notes all the way up to the point of the thing, and then we were recording. So I was in this state of mind of analyzing and being present to the experience and to basically be able to download and to put into words the the translinguistic or the inexpressible. And what we've tried to do in the film, because we've tried to recreate the image journey, so there's, there's about 10 minutes or maybe a bit less where we take you on the journey with sort of toggling between the exterior footage of the experiment and the interior um, visuals, which we recreate with a, some beautiful fractaling uh dmt type sequences but it, yeah it's yeah, hard to posted, describe because it, it just sounds the, like words but in the high we really tried to basically anchor oh, the visions and to in, invoke in the the viewer the, the same experience so the narration takes the uh you know the brain on, on the journey on, on one part and then the the visuals and the music really load you in and, and draw you in on another part and it's it's quite enduring because we make the viewer go on that very long, dense journey into the heart of this experience. And as you might know from 5-MEO, it, it's, it's stronger than normal NNDMT and it, it can often um, be just basically the white light tunnel. And so I experienced basically the white light tunnel, but to me it felt like a superhadron collider of, of inner space and I could feel these very intricate nuances going on and this sort of this, it, it, this atomic sort of vibration where I was merging my wavefront into the source, you know, this, 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 but it was just so infinitely deepening going in and in and in and on the journey. I was lucid dreaming basically the whole time as I merged into the drop rejoining the ocean until the point of complete unconsciousness of ego when I was, was the ocean. And then, you know, then it wore off and you start to fall back. But somewhere in there, I realized as well, it's about letting go. And it's really about um, not just opening to the experience, but when you meet your maker, when you are in, in the face of the divine and you recognize you are the divine, there's, there's nothing left to hold on to. So what I actually did, I, some sounds escaped me in the process. And in that state, I basically could visualize the sounds that were coming out of me. And then I realized it's all about sound in there. Like everything is vibration and everything we see is actually just another frequency of sound at, at a light vibration. And so I was making sound back to the Godhead. And then what I actually ended up doing was just really this this Tarzan cry back to God to acknowledge, you know, source and presence and the fact that I was 
grokking the fact that sound is how you navigate in that realm. But what you'll see on the video that we've got in the movie is this complete and utter translinguistic meltdown in hyperspace. <laughs> so it's, it's quite unlike anything else that's been. Um, I, I'm excited to see cinema. it because uh, I was. I really wanted to. I think that chapter ends with you uh, sort of merging with that godhead, and I really wanted more. So I'm glad that the scene that scene is going to be in the in the in the video. I saw some of the special effects in the HD trailer that you put up on YouTube. We posted on our Facebook wall this morning, and I was really impressed with the visual effects that you had. Can you tell me uh, who who did you have working on those? Well, this has been a, a very intimate project that, that began. Uh, the, the movie I.O. Awakenings began as I was touring the, the book in, in America in 2009, uh, with Tim Parrish, uh, and Lulu Medill. And then my very good friends, Tim, Tim and I, uh, founded undergrowth.org in 2004, which is a sort of Australia's version of Reality Sandwich, I guess, although we predated Reality Sandwich. But it's a countercultural online, uh, multimedia site supporting countercultural artists and musicians and, and the like. Um, and Tim is an amazing Renaissance man. He's, um, you know, he's a writer, he's a poet, he's an artist, he's a video maker. Um, he, he does so many things. And Lulu Medill is an amazingly talented, uh, sound designer and, um, singer in her own right. And so we were touring the book in 2009 and we hit upon a way to do basically a two hour block of spoken word readings from the book, taking the gist of the book with Tim doing BJ, um, visuals behind it and sampling in photos from the, the journey and Lulu doing the soundscapes. And the movie basically evolved from that. So from the point of, Funnily enough, from the point in 2006 of going on the journey and documenting it and writing it and releasing the book in 2009 and touring the book in late 2009, it's never stopped. You know, the, the whole pro, it's all one big organic process. And so we've been, we, we did a, a, a possible campaign of a crowdsourcing campaign in 2011 to get some more money for the film and had some private investors. And Tim has done these amazing, absolutely amazing visuals. He basically did the whole thing in Final Cut Pro. And from what I've heard from some other uh, media practitioners, he's totally burst the ability, like he's broken through the wall of what Final Cut Pro was meant to do. And and he's I've just done things some, which I've is so out there. I've seen some pretty amazing stuff. I've seen some pretty amazing stuff with Final Cut. I know a couple of people who are just Final Cut uh, wizards. But yeah, this is... The kind of stuff that we're seeing is is great. I think it was it was well, a lot of it bad. as well, and it's it's very much Tim's style that he's used in undergrowth in uh, in two dimensional light as well as three D video type stuff. But he has a very organic approach, and and you know it's a very um, a lot of it's using filters and kaleidoscope and things like that, which um, which mirror and and. It's very, it's very, some of it can be subtle and some, it's all very beautiful. But what I, what I feel is that he's gotten very close in some of the, uh, the, some of his work and, and I guess the algorithms which are coding some of these programs to produce this art. It makes me realize that we're getting very close to cracking the code that nature, you know, is using of how we, how we perceive and how we process these either hallucinations or the visual data on, on this level. Um, it seems to be that we're, we're almost able with our technology these days to create the visionary state, you know, um, as an exterior adjunct of technology of what we actually experience and what we see inside in, a, in, a, in the visionary state in our brains. Right. So, yeah, my, my whole theory behind this is that uh, when we're taking psychedelics, we're basically hacking the output of the human camera. And since cameras are developed to mimic the abilities of the human eye, 
we can hack cameras and the kind of um, results they produce in the same way, using the same sort of algorithms that the brain uses to, to spit out these, these amazingly deep fractal renderings of something that's slightly not reality. I mean, it's, it's, it's meta-reality in, uh, in some ways yeah. because it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a collage made out of waking reality, dreaming reality, this alternate spirit reality, this archetypal universe uh, that we all we kind of tap into. So it's, uh, it's, it's interesting that we can actually do that we can actually simulate that now on computers. Um, one well, last it, thing. It brings up a lot, of interesting, a lot of interesting issues because not only can we simulate it, I guess we can transmit it. And it, it's very interesting, the power of media. Now, if we can transmit the visionary experience without having taken any substance illegal or not, um, it becomes very, uh, well, it, it, just, it becomes viral. We have the ability now to transmit this visionary experience. And then once you see it, Something of the experience resonates with us, I think. Like some, we've had a lot of feedback from the Australian screenings of the movie. We've toured the, the film Meyer Awakenings around Australia in seven cities now. And many, many people, uh, who have done ayahuasca are having not quite flashbacks, but some type of, um, energetic vibrational, uh, remembrance. They're having sort of this awakening when they watch the film. It's really deeply triggering. Uh, their previous experiences of ayahuasca and the DMT sequence, the 5-MeO DMT suite sequence, because it is like a, you know, almost an eight or 10 minute sequence, it really puts you in that state. And as I said, the words and the visions combine to actually, even if you've not done anything previously, it completely transports you into the visionary realm. And it, it's, um, it's, it's magic, basically. I really think that what we're, we've got here is a shamanic artifact that what we've managed to do is condense down different sense modalities with the sound and the vision and the narration taking on the emotional journey to really anchor that uh, that interior landscape and then bring it out onto the outside to transmit it, you know, in a viral sense. Yeah, it's. I think uh, from the trailer, I think it looks great. I'm I'm excited to see uh, a copy when it comes out. Uh, one uh, one more topic I wanted to get into is your podcast. You've been doing that for a few years now, and you've interviewed some pretty interesting people. I saw a couple weeks ago you released an interview with Paul Stamets. Yeah. How yep. how did that go? I mean, uh, he's been he's been pretty underground for a long time. Uh, what 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 did you guys talk about? Uh, Paul was lovely. Paul is such a uh, a gentleman, actually, as well as a professional in his field. You know, he's I, I guess the world's leading uh, mycologist, right? Um, and his his knowledge of of mushrooms is just just unsurpassed. He, he came out here to Australia and was talking at the Uplift Festival uh, here in Byron Bay, and um, his was one of the you know just the most standout talks I felt. He's, he was just um, you know he's done one of those those TED talks, and I think he's had like you know two million views or something. He's like this. His knowledge is, is really out there, but I mean, a lot of it is, is not necessarily about, uh, um, psychoactive mushrooms. It's the power of mushrooms for bioremediation in the environment. Right, that's, that's and also, thing now, yeah, yeah, and understanding the mycelium networks and how, how mushrooms as a, as a, um, you know, organism spreads itself and how that, that pattern and that, um, I guess how how that applies, you know, in nature, and and it, mm-hmm. it's just so fascinating the, the body of knowledge that he had. But one of the interesting things I found in the talk with him, he was actually willing to discuss some of the psychedelic undercurrents yeah, to his that's work. That's why I wanted to. I mean, he hasn't really talked about that much. So, what, what did yeah, you? Yeah, like he keeps a professional profile, and, and obviously, t- total much respect to him in doing that. But he, he divulged in the in the podcast I, I, I did with him. 
his shamanic origins, I guess. You know, it's like his secret origin is like when he was like 18 or 19 and he did this uh, very large bag of magic mushrooms on his first journey. He didn't know how much was too much. And he was walking along and um, there was this huge thunderstorm and he, he started to quickly feel that, you know, he was coming up on the mushroom journey. And he basically clung to this tree up on a hill as this giant thunderstorm overtook him and, uh, you know, thunderbolts and lightning and huge archetypal things. But here's the interesting thing. He had a, a completely archetypal shamanic experience, like to a T. It, it fits all the, you know, the, the, the framework of what I've, I've read of shamanic uh, initiations. And mm-hmm. he experienced the, the classical thing of, of, of psychoactives of the ego dissolving and then the connection to nature. But because he was in this raw elemental power of the storm, it was, it was really amped up. And he had this, this vision and basically, you know, the world soul or the world spirit sort of spoke to him and, and basically told him that, you know, how in pain it was from what the humans were doing and how, how he did, I guess he just felt that emotional connection to the planet and his need then to, um, to be a protector and to, to be of someone in service to the planet. And so that was the start of his journey with, with the magic mushrooms and also his journey of understanding to, to mushrooms in general, I guess. And, you know, he's done a lot of work with, with mushrooms throughout his 20, 30 year career. And, uh, he was saying that he actually was talking to the American government and they were pioneering some type of study for bioremediation of right, the land. Right, right. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, the, the best mushroom around, which had the, the, the I think it was a phosphate sort of, um, uptake or, or nitrogen or something and was was, a, was actually a, one of the psychoactive uh, species of mushrooms and he sort of snuck that in into the the um the um the plan for what they were going to be doing but you know they they were like well no paul we, we can't use psychoactive mushrooms where the american government you know but it, it was actually still from a from a bit from a professional sense he, he said that no that, that what that was the best mushroom available to to use for bioremediation of the land, and they could have done it in a way that it maybe it wouldn't have been psychoactive if they had used the right, uh, you know, type of mushrooms and the right mm-hmm. cy- cycle of their growth. Um, so let's, let's talk about um, who, who, what other guests have have been like uh, some of your favorite. What's been like the strangest interview that you've done? Uh, I don't know. I've had some lovely guests. I, I, I guess I approach my podcast that I just like to have chats with people, you know, yeah. and uh, I really just I just go straight into it. I don't have a lot of um, a lot of uh, um, padding around my interviews. I just like to get to the guts of uh, having a good chat with someone and sure. really trying to get to the bottom of what they're about and what the sort of psychedelic culture or their issues are. I talked to Diana Slattery uh, a few a few months ago, and she was fascinating. I really resonated with her and her work about xenolinguistics. And, right, um, the archetypal uh, Ur language. Or, uh, yeah, well, she's been doing deep journey work for years and as, as a PhD, you know, and writing it up as a thesis and she's done a book and she's brought back language from the interdimensional spaces, which she calls the glide language. And she's just released it as an iPhone app. And how great is that? Like she's gone deep into the visionary realm, done exactly what McKenna said to bring back the ideas which matter, not too big, not too small, but something practical. And she's, she's always, she's dialoguing with the other in, in hyperdimensional space and trying to make sense of it. So I really appreciate her efforts as a, as a pioneer and as a, um, you know, as an academic to, to make, make use of the psychedelic experience and bring something back. Um, I don't know, some of my recent podcasts as well. Uh, well, last year I spoke with Robert Forte and Jan Oh, Irvin sure, yeah. Mm-hmm. About some related issues and Jan's still, um, still unearthing information about Gordon Wasoon and, uh, and the magic mushrooms and his connection with, uh, government agencies uh, with MKUltra. And there seems to be some, 
I think there's, I think there's something in it. I think there's something in it. Maybe not all the conclusions are valid. Um, I think we've got to separate, you know, uh, jumping the gun, but there seems to be definite documentary evidence, uh, which I commend him on I'm really researching very deeply into the origins of, um, MK Ultra and the connection to the elites and to even, you know, whoever, including Gordon Wasoon. Robert Forte has been doing some very interesting research of his own on, uh, you know, psychedelic culture and the repression of the political sort of, um, uh, um, meme in the 60s and the the defanging of the you know anti-war movement and right, um, right. Mm-hmm. i guess the, the the danger of uh psychedelics becoming a soma for the masses and um and things like that um i've spoken spoken to Terry uh, sorry dennis mckenna quite a sure, few times i saw that interview yeah I, I, listened, I listened to that one sure the most recent dennis one. dennis is a real sweetie i love dennis yeah he's, uh, yeah he's dennis is great integral. yeah he's very integral so, and he's still on his path so when are you off to Oakland? I'm off to Oakland tomorrow, actually. I leave wow. uh, Monday the 15th, and I'll be going to the MAPS, uh, the, the Psychedelic Science 2013 conference. And um, I'm hosting, I'm co-hosting with Steve Bayer and Sita a um, Ayahuasca Forum discussion on Thursday the 18th at 7.30 p.m., and um, that's really open to the general public as well. It hasn't really been widely advertised on the map site, but um, Thursday's registration day, is Thursday night, there's um, a screening of the Eye Awakenings film for uh, attendees of the MAPS conference, and there's also uh, an Ayahuasca forum which is open to the general public, and it's basically been convened because it's been f- felt in the scene since the uh, the fallout from the Shimbre death uh, in September last year it sort of brought things to a head in the culture and um, there's a, a lot of issues about duty of care and the management of uh, the growth of ayahuasca culture both in the West and in the uh, the lodge system in Peru that um, quite a few of us were feeling need to be addressed um, and we've got so many leading researchers and academics at the, the conference that we're really hoping that will be quite an integral conversation. Yeah, it seems really interesting. There's there's two fronts going on. There's the uh, the psychedelic research revival in the West, and then there's this shamanic revival in, uh, I guess you could call it the South. And uh, it's funny that they both come together at the psychedelic science conference where you've got one group of people, you've got people talking about scientific research, you've got people talking about clinical studies, and then you've got other people talking about what's going on uh, with the ayahuasca scene in Peru. So there's three tracks of things going on there at the psychedelics at the MAPS conference. Yeah, so there's plenty of to... plenty of stuff to see. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Um, what's ahead. interesting for me is that the, I guess the ayahuasca track is something which has grown at the uh, psychedelic science conferences over the years. And I was at uh, the same conference three three years ago in 2010, and ayahuasca yeah, we, had. That's when my, That's when we. Yeah, met. we we met there. Yeah. It had a, a large sort of, um, you know, time devoted to it then, but it, it's it's now, you know, almost half of the entire conference. And I guess because ayahuasca is verifiable as a medicine, it's used as such throughout South America, and there has been scientific studies with the Hawaska Project in the 1990s and quite a few others more recently as well, um, you know, on, on different levels. It's it's something which I guess medicine and science is um, is really sinking their teeth into that they can have some verifiable results from and they can bring it back from the jungles and into the labs and they can, you know, do something with it that they can um, they can fit into their paradigm. I, I you know, I also think that ayahuasca goes beyond just the uh, the Western paradigm and beyond just 
uh, commodifying it into perhaps a, uh, a medicine per se. Um, but it's wonderful. It's so wonderful that uh, there's so many academics and scientists are studying it worldwide and that they can uh, pull their resources and knowledge and be present at an uh, event like the Psychedelic Science. All right, Rock. Well, it's. I think we're just about out of time. It's been uh, great talking to you. And uh, when you're in uh, Oakland next week, be sure to say hi to everyone for us. I'm not going to be there this year, unfortunately. I uh, didn't really have a presentation to give to the MAPS people, so uh, I decided to sit this one out. And um, I'm sure you're going to see a lot of. I'm sure you're going to see a lot of people that we've had on the show here. So. uh, and this will be out next week. Uh, the people will be able to download this podcast on Wednesday. So, um, right. So Wednesday's the day that we are, we're launching the Eye Awakenings film in San Francisco at the Clay Theater at 7 p.m. So, oh, great. So, we'll definitely timing. put a, we'll put a note up about that and, uh, we'll make sure that people know and get out to see it because, frankly, I'm excited. Uh, I haven't really seen a, gr- I mean, I've seen a few documentaries about ayahuasca in South America, but I haven't seen a really, artistically done one with you know that's come with a little bit of flair to it so I'm, I'm i'm interested to see what you guys have put together yeah we're so we're so happy to be sharing it it's um it's very unlike any other ayahuasca documentary or almost like any, unlike any other documentary that's been seen you know we've really taking people on that journey and showing the inner and as well as the outer journey and um it's uh it's very experiential it's very gonzo it's very real it has a very uh real gravity to it we've used the exact narration from the book to uh to anchor the journey and um it has a very strong powerful presence and i think people are going to um go on that journey well rock thanks so much for joining us this evening uh it's been a really interesting program tonight yeah thank you jake thank you uh thank you um James, it's been really yes. wonderful to be here. And uh, go off, and uh, I guess you can get back to bed now that you're uh, done yeah. with you. <laughs> I'm I on the other side of the world. I'll uh, I'll have breakfast now. Right. Well, thank you for getting up so early to talk to us. I Absolutely. know uh, we it's not your that. way, but uh, it's uh, we we thank you very much. It's been a pleasure to be on the show, and best of luck with everything. And uh, and hello to everyone out there at Dose Nation. Yes, right. and best of luck at the conference next week as well. Thanks, guys. All right, uh, ladies and gentlemen, you've been listening to Dose Nation. I am your host, Jake, and of course, with me, as always, is James Kent, founder and uh, co-host of the Dose Nation podcast. So, uh, before we sign Please, off... Oh, yeah, I have a couple things to say before we sign off. Um, if you guys want to follow what we're talking about on the show or the news that we talk about, you can just always check out our Facebook wall. That's where we post random notes and links to things that we discuss on the show. Also, we're starting a Bitcoin donation drive. If any of you out there have Bitcoin wallets that have grown fat in the last few weeks because of the rising price and rising value of Bitcoin, uh, you can you know share a little bit with that. We have a link to our Bitcoin wallet on our on our DoseNation.com homepage. Um, for those of you who know what that is, you know what to do. Uh, for everyone else, you can follow us on Facebook or Twitter. You can follow our iTunes feed or our RSS feed. All of those links are available at the top of the DoseNation.com page. 
Yeah, but you just took everything I was going to say. <laughs> well, and you can click through to Amazon. Yes. I know that's your job, but I thought I'd do it this week. Okay, all right, that's fine, yeah. And, uh, you know, finally, if you like Dose Nation, tell a friend, anybody who listens to iTunes, anyone who listens to podcasts, uh, these are people who would love to have another hour of disembodied people talking over an electronic network to fill the void of human existence. So, recommend Dose Nation to a friend. <laughs> Thanks to our guest, Rock Razam. We finally got together. Rock, it's been great. Jake, it's been great. I guess we'll see you all next week. Yes, and uh, tonight I'm going to be playing a different kind of uh, outro song. Some of you may be familiar with it. Some of you uh, may, be, may, may be unfamiliar with it. It's a uh, polyphonic chanson by Guillaume de Mochard. I think I pronounced that correctly, so enjoy. Oh, my God. 